This Choircast podcast is brought to you by The Resurrection of Jesse Barrow, novella and collected works by Brandon Dragan, winner of the American Bar Association Journal's Ross Writing Contest. Folks in these parts like two things most of all, sausage and justice, though I reckon they wouldn't much care to watch how either one is made. When the mayor of a small town in rural Alabama is murdered, the desperate search for answers leads police to Jesse Barrow, a young drunk with an axe to grind. Despite professing his innocence, Jesse finds himself accused with only one way to keep himself out of the electric chair, to betray his one true friend. The Resurrection of Jesse Barrow is a fast-paced novella that confronts miscarriages of justice and age-old misconceptions about privilege. This collection features three additional short stories, including Advocat, winner of the ABA Contest for Legal Fiction. The Resurrection of Jesse Barrow is available on Amazon, Audible, and everywhere books are sold. Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Check, check, one, two, three. Ray Comfort is a douchebag. That's how we're going to start this episode because seriously... He, oh, he's the, oh, he's the worst. Anyway, hey, welcome back to the podcast. <laughs> my name is Nat. I'm with my brother John, uh, and this is not church because if it was church, you would have left by now. In fact, some of you have already made, maybe made your way to the door. If this makes it into the final cut, if our intro is actually Ray Comfort as a douchebag, I suspect there'll be a handful of people like handful of people be like, "Well, I'm not listening to this woke bullshit. I'm out of here." So, uh, <laughs> and you know, to them I say, stick around. It'll be okay. You'll be fine. Very few people have been, you know, seriously injured by thoughts. I mean, it's okay. We could probably have a discussion. But anyway, we are awesome. We are awesome. We are awesome. Yes, we, we are. We are awesome. We are awesomely blessed. Uh, we're here with another amazing guest. And I'm going to read you a little bit about, a little bit of something about him. And he, and as I, I can see him in the upper right hand corner of my computer screen and I can see he's wondering what the hell he's done. Like, like they told me these guys were pros and this guy can't get a sentence out. We are joined today by Seth Showalter. Did I say that correctly? Yes, you did. All right. Woohoo. All right. Hey, that's one. Seth is an MHA, MSW, LCSW, and he's a dedicated and compassionate therapist in Columbia, Missouri. With a personal understanding of the transformative power of therapy, Seth is committed to providing a safe and accepting space for individuals seeking support and guidance. That's a Wow, that's a succinct bio, John. Yes, that it is. Maybe the most succinct to the point ones we've had. Welcome to the podcast. And recently published author of the book Finally Free. That that should probably go in the that should probably go in the message you sent me. Sorry, I, I messed up. Because you know I'm like I'm like a, I'm I'm like a anchor man. No, yeah, I'm not, I'm Steve Carell's character on the anchor man where if I just read what's in front of me, man. So if you put a question mark in the wrong place, Seth, Seth Showalter is an author? Did he say that as a question? Well, you don't put it on the cue cards, man. <laughs> what is the name of the new book, John? Finally Free. Finally Free. Awesome. And has it been released? Yes. Awesome. Okay. There we go. So we <laughs> have with us Seth Showalter. Welcome to the podcast. How are you, sir? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, man. My pleasure. I, can Might I say just first of all, thank you for having a real microphone. Of course. As a podcaster, it always... it. <laughs> well, I, I love people, man. People are great, but sometimes I show up with, and I've done this. What cracks me up, John, is the very first podcast interview I ever did where I gave in it, where I was the interviewee. I showed up with earbuds that crackled just like uh, our last guest did the entire story. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> and I had to gonna... apologize to Jason. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, man. Because when yeah. I heard the audio back, I'm like, what is that? <laughs> it's like, that was your, your earphones, dude. Like so, but we appreciate you. I'm looking at your at your setup. I'm like, oh man, this guy's a pro. Like he's got the pro gear. So cool. <laughs> so, so hey, um, if you don't mind, our sort of our normal kickoff question for folks is kind of maybe just give us some background. We've maybe overused this term faith journey, but just kind of walk us through the process that led you. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? We said it for a year. Oh, yes. now, now every time I say it, I go, I'm not sure I want to say that anymore. We've got to find a new way to say that. But just walk us through a little bit of that background, if you don't mind. Oh, absolutely. So I grew up in the church. Uh, faith was everything to me as a kiddo. Uh, I was raised Southern Baptist through and through. And in fact, church became a safe haven for me. 
Because growing up, I experienced a lot of rejection where I went to school. And so church became a source of acceptance for me and a place of escaping my current reality and getting away from everything that was going on. So it it complicated everything into such a way that it wasn't just going to be closer to God, but also escaping all of my problems. And, And it really complicated things as I started to realize that I was gay in high school. And so I began to turn more to the church as a way of escaping and then begging God to make me straight as I started to work through some of those issues. And so by the time I hit, uh, by the time I hit graduation of high school, I was like, you know what? I need to do anything and everything I can to seek help. And so I actually dedicated myself to a year internship at a mega church uh, right out of high school because I wanted to do everything I could. Wow. And was that hope that if you immersed yourself in that world enough, that that would straighten you out? I mean, that's a terrible play on words, but you understand what I'm saying? Well, no, it's, it's kind of spot on. I, that's exactly what I thought. Yeah. Was that, what, let me ask you this real quick, because I've, I've heard that. In fact, we just had this conversation, didn't we, John? Yeah. I mean, not more than 45 minutes ago with somebody who, and I, I, I had asserted that, I, I can't count the number of conversations I've had with people who are LGBTQ somewhere on that spectrum and who have said, I would have given anything for that not to be true. Like I, I prayed. Then those, those who were Christians or, or any kind of faith or whatever, prayed like crazy for God to change this about them. Was that a message that you got either implicitly or indirectly uh, or even directly, that that was what you should do? Or, were, or was it something that was just an internal struggle? Quite frankly, I would say it's a little bit of both. I had, in high school, I had a high school mentor uh, that I was meeting with. And he really kind of drew, like, drilled that home as much as he could that I needed to do everything that I could to earn God's favor. So that so that was <laughs> it was coming from an outside source, but then at the same time, I was really compelled at the same time to do everything that I could. In fact, I felt called to go into the ministry at a young age, and I think a lot of LGBTQIA plus members uh, and population do feel that way. Uh, and so, yeah. I felt called into the ministry. So that's kind of what drew me and motivated me forward. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that too, because a lot, now that you say that, I think about all of the people that I've known who, who that was exactly their experience. Like they, and maybe it's because they're just the kind of people who are, I don't know, maybe more empathetic or who feel that, who feel that pull. To, to, to go into some kind of ministry service, right? Because of that, just the makeup of their character, only to have that very thing that makes them who they are be what would eventually bar them from that ministry, right? It's, it's this weird twist of irony that, you know, you feel called in to do this and then you're also at some point running the risk of being shunned by those same people if you ever dared to be yourself, right? So do you, do you think that like, as, as, you, know, you can only speak for yourself or people you know, but do you feel like this was something that was that you felt you needed to do to within like current, you know, the pray the gay away? Or was this something so you could kind of hide in the shadows of the church? Which uh or or was it a, a little of both again? So this is step one of no. many. Right. Gotcha. Okay. Like, let me be very, very clear. And it's laid out in my book, like going into like this first step out of high school is the first step that I took. Mm-hmm. This is not the conversion therapy experience. Right. Oh, right. No. That came, that came much later when I actually admitted my test self to a substance use treatment facility that believed if God had the power to heal the alcoholic, uh, he could uh, heal the homosexual. So that became much later after college. So this it, this mega church experience right out of high school was my first attempt at earning God's favor. So I don't know if I really went into that consciously knowing 
to be frank. I was just like, help. I need help. Well, and that's the, sadly, that's the legacy of, of church for a lot of folks, right? Is that you were even in a position where you were like, oh, I need help for this thing that I have no control over. And that's not inherently bad or wrong, but that the church has told me either directly or indirectly is wrong and made me feel bad about. So now I need something to fix this thing. I think that's something that we still struggle with, right? I mean, I know that, I know that, I mean, I'm not in church anymore. I made the break a little while ago, but even in the most sort of, and I hate the word tolerant, God, the word tolerant sucks, but in the most sort of self-described tolerant churches, there is still this implicit expectation that you're going to eventually conform to normal. See, and again, air quotes on the normal thing, right? And so all of my, all of my gay friends still felt this enormous pressure to either not be, you know, don't be too open about your, your sexuality or even worse, completely hide it, obscure it and, and pretend to be hetero. I don't know. It, 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 it's, it's heartbreaking. And you said that was the first step of many. So you step one, immerse yourself in church life, hope that'll kind of fix things along. So if you wouldn't mind, just maybe walk us through some of the other, you don't have to walk us through the whole book because people need to buy the book, man. Yeah, no, absolutely. So the first uh, the first step was going to a mega church and spending a, a year internship there where I literally worked with their youth ministry and worked with kids trying to do what I could. And, and that really was my first attempt at earning God's favor. Then I moved forward into a larger university setting. And once I got into that setting, I started getting involved with campus ministries. And one of the biggest campus ministries I got involved with, I don't care saying this, it's mentioned in the book, but it was Campus Crusade for Christ. And they, they then started referring me to individuals that they believed God had made them straight. And so I had someone that I met with for discipleship. I had someone that I met with for guidance. I had someone that I met with for leadership. I had someone that I met with for accountability. I had all of these things set up through Campus Crusade. And then in addition to that, I also had the church. I had the, the entire community that came along with that. And then I started seeking out conferences, right? So I actually went to like Living Waters, for example, was a conference I attended, uh, which was all about changing people from being uh, gay to straight, believing that God had the power to heal the, the homosexual. So I did multiple things like that uh, all throughout my college experience. And then it, the problem with all of this is that none of this worked. Like none of this worked. And so I then began turning to drugs, alcohol, and sex as a way of coping with the disappointment and coping with the, the feelings of feeling like a failure because I didn't know how to handle how to handle this because it was like I'm not only feeling bad towards myself, but I feel like I'm failing towards God and towards my faith community and towards my family. Like it, it just, it was really overwhelming. So by the time I, I graduated from college, I went to my parents and I essentially came to them and said, you know what? My life is out of control and I don't know what to do. I think I, the, the line that's in my book and I, I talked about it specifically with my parents, but I went to my parents and said, I want to be fixed. Throw me in a room lock the door and walk away until I can come out straight. Whatever you have to do, put me there. And so they found a Christian drug and alcohol rehab facility, mom and pop, small agency in California that believed if God had the power to heal the alcoholic, he had the power to heal the homosexual. And that's what my book is about. It's all 89 days in that program. Oh my God. So, I mean, just, and I have no experience with any of this. So I, I would just, this is all a guess on my side. It has to have been horrific. There, there had to have been just terrible. Well, I mean, psychologically, yes. Yeah. Okay. Because the the turmoil that I was going through was like, it was, I would say, psychologically manipulative and controlling and leading you to doubt yourself 
Yeah. So there was a lot of gaslighting involved as well. I was going to say, yeah, that was, that's, yeah, that, that word popped into my head right away. And like, so, so you can't be feeling what you're feeling. You can't actually know what you know. And then see, to me, all of this stuff is crazy. And then when you, when you then dump a bunch of religion on top of that, oh, by the way, God hates this too. The psychological damage has got to be catastrophic, I would think. And obviously, we see the result of this every day, right? We see such a high percentage or such a higher percentage of self-harm and suicidal ideation, all this kind of stuff inside of that community. And I would lay huge chunks of that at the feet of the church. I mean, there's blood on all their hands, right? That process goes on for, you said, 89 days? Mm-hmm. Wow. How long after that that experience did you did it take for you to either unravel that and move into that next phase where you finally, you know, maybe you finally came to acceptance for who you are and, and embrace that? So, well, I would say years, first and foremost, because even when I ended up coming out of the closet, theoretically, I mean, technically, not theoretically, I actually did. When I came out of the closet on Facebook, that was in 2015. I went to this program in 2012. So about three years. However, even after coming out of the closet and learning, quote unquote, to accept myself, I was still very much struggling with that because of the psychological damage. I mean, you're trying to unravel a lifetime, right? There's a lifetime of psychological trauma and all kinds of other stuff that you're trying. This doesn't unravel overnight, right? And so it took a a really long time. So like coming out on Facebook in 2015, that was like fighting myself and just saying, you know what, I'm just going to put this out there. And it was a step I took and forced myself to do, but I wasn't completely believing it yet at that time. I just needed to do it because it was an action that I, I needed to put behind, behind my words, you know? Well, what's really interesting is we, I think we've been Facebook friends for a long time, you and I. Um, I'm not sure we've ever interacted on Facebook, but I've, I've read your stuff. I'm, maybe you've read some of mine. It was people like you who were bravely putting stuff out there in that public space that caused a lot of my questions inside of my own faith tradition to go, okay, wait a minute, hold on. Maybe the things that I've been taught about LGBTQIA plus people have, maybe none of that's true. Maybe it's not right. So if, if, it, if nothing else, I just want to say uh, I appreciated uh, your willingness to be um, public about some of that stuff because it helped not just um, people inside your community, help people outside of your community start to look at things differently and say, if I've been wrong about those things, maybe I've been wrong about this too. And it pushed us forward. So I, I mean, I appreciate that very much. So just wanted to make sure and let you know. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And it's really the whole point behind writing the book. Yeah. <laughs> well, I always, I, I was going to ask you, you know, because a lot of times we have authors on them. Like I get, there's always an intended audience, right? Um, but in the back of your mind, is there also a hopeful secondary audience? You know, like, hey, I wrote this book for these people, but I sure wouldn't mind if these folks got some of this as well. Oh, yeah. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. So I, <laughs> there, I, it's really aimed at three audiences, but. Okay, cool. The, the the primary audience is the LGBTQ population uh, because I want them to know that they're not alone and that their experience is not singular to themselves, but that this is a universal problem for so many of us and that these are themes that a lot of us have experienced. You know, one of the things that happens in this situation is that we feel so isolated and so alone. And I wanted to provide a voice so that people don't have to feel that and they know that they're not alone. So that's the primary audience. The second audience is the church. I, I really wanted the church to, to read and hear this book. And in fact, the epilogue of my book, I don't mind sharing this on a podcast, the, the ending of my book is literally addressed to the church. I have an entire section that's like, to the church, I want to say this. Because I, I feel like they need, they need to hear a few things. And so it, it's really targeted to them in that way. And then also, as a mental health professional now, 
I can't help but recognize some of the ways the facility staff were operating. So I also interweave some mental health components to all of this. So it's also addressed to mental health professionals. That's such an important component, though, that I think gets overlooked a lot of times. I, I talk to a lot of people, and and there's there's this mental health component. This is one of the things that drives me nuts about churches. Um, and if you feel like you're being picked on church, get over it. It's okay. But we were trained as though, or we were told to approach people as though we had the, like we had the ability to uh, to offer mental health advice. I was actually a senior pastor of a church that I planted for about two and a half years, three years, I think we lasted before I, I closed up shop. But one of the very first things I told people who, you know, bothered to come to my church was like, I'm not a mental health professional. So if you come to me with issues that are way outside my scope, I'm going to direct you to people who, who know what they're talking about. I mean, I can pray with you and I can talk to you, but man, I, I got, I got, because I kept getting inundated with these stories of people who would go to a pastor or somebody with a for real legitimate issue. And the only response they ever got was they were supposed to pray more, read the Bible more, whatever they do, don't take any medicine or go see a psychologist. I mean, they were, they were actually actively d- discouraged from seeking mental health professionally. And I'm like, good God, we've set ourselves up as actual, you know, counselors and psychologists and 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 try to steer people away from the people who might actually offer them some legitimate help. And so the church needs, I, I, I love that because the church needs to hear that. And maybe the best thing that pastors like I can, like like me and others can do is, is get the hell out of the way and uh, admit that you don't know what you don't know, right? Mm-hmm. Well, there's just so much that the church has tried to operate in. And this is specifically one area that the church got it wrong. Oh, yeah. And the damages of the church's perspective and its belief system are still having an impact today. And we're seeing it in very vivid color. So it's why the book has been written. No, 100%. And and I, you know, we've talked about this on the podcast. I left the church back in 1988, 89 with a, like a little reintroduction to the church in the, in the twenty teens, I guess. But one of the reasons I had to leave the church was my close connection with the LGBTQIA plus community back then and realizing the church had no space for them. And so I consider myself very lucky to be considered to be connected to the LGBTQIA plus community at a very young age and realizing that my church had told me a bunch of lies at a very young age. Uh, but I found that there was no, there was no space for conversation. If you, if you even remotely wanted to talk about your gay friend, your, your lesbian friend, your trans, your transgender friend. Um, so I, I look back sometimes and say I was kind of cowardly. And then at the same time, I feel like I did the right thing, but I, I left because they weren't willing to come along with me. So there's part of me that is angry at myself or not maybe standing up within the church, but at the same time, I don't feel like there was any room for there, for there to be vocalized what I thought the church should do. I feel like that's the same now, unfortunately. I feel like the church, if nothing has, if, if nothing else has doubled down on their anti-gay, anti-trans, anti what, you know, anti-LGBTQIA plus. And sadly, I don't know where we go from here. You know, I, I, I love the community that the church could have been, right? But at the same time, if we're not willing to acknowledge the people who are, quote, and this is, again, huge quote, air quotes, quote, unquote, different than us, then why the hell do we even want to do this? And so is there, is there any hope for any kind of church, even an affirming church? Because I have a couple churches around me that are, are, are affirming. Do I even step foot into those? Is it, is it worth my time? No. No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. That is a good question. <laughs> and so, all right. This, this is a personal question. I don't think that there is a right or wrong answer here. Uh, so like for me, 
going to church is an extremely triggering experience. So it like it doesn't matter what church it is. Like I don't care. Like it doesn't matter. It's triggering. But for you, on the other hand, it might not be triggering. In which case, I think going to an LGBTQIA plus affirming church, a church that is accepting and affirming of everyone, I think it's a, a completely acceptable and wonderful thing to do. And so, you know, something that I also would look forward to is like, do, do other LGBTQIA plus individuals go to that church? And are they serving? Right, right. Do they do they have positions of service in that church? Yes. If they do, then I don't see any problem with it. And what really it comes down to is your personal your personal feelings in relationship to it, rather than an automatic yes or no, because I think it's a personal choice. What you said about church being triggering is interesting because I. Um, I've, I've been in church my whole life. It's only been, it's been less than a year that I've been outside of church. But we went and did a, uh, a participated in a conference with our publisher and uh, in Nashville called Awaken and it was held at a church. And I was like, oh shit. <laughs> like, this is, and I know they're a cool church. I know they're, a, you know, it, it's an affirming church. I know the pastor is affirming. Anyway, everything I knew about the church said, cool place. And I still, like, for two and a half days was like, I don't know, man. I'm like on edge in this place. And then even the pastor, when the pastor spoke, the pastor of that church did a 30 or 40 minute talk and, and everything he said was fine. But there's still, there are still mannerisms of preachers. There are still sort of idiosyncratic ways of speaking. There's still certain things they do that for me were like, Oh man, I'm not disagreeing with anything you're saying, but the manner in which it's being delivered. All this stuff that is just—it's just bringing up all these really bad memories of, and I, you know, it, it made it hard to hear, you know. And so for me, I'm with John. I'm like, I'm like, I'm. Some of that is some of that is this place of of nostalgia and almost regret at what the church could be and should be, but has not lived up to its potential to be a place that you know. Because you said in the beginning that you went to church, you know, as a as a respite, right? As a as an escape from, you know, and so, and it's best iteration, church can be a place of sanctuary. Sadly, it doesn't end up being that way for, for, for much of its, for, for most people, I don't think, you know, and so it's like, man, this, this could be this place of, of, of safety and of healing and of, of rest and of actual genuine connection. But so often it ends up being a place where we pretend and we put on, you know, we perform a certain way or we wear these disguises. And so I, I don't know, you know, it, I still see the potential in it, but I, I, I wrestle with, with whether or not it's possible. I had a question though. I, as you're going through all of this stuff, were there people in your life with whom you could be transparent and with whom you could be honest about what you were going through or, or were you pretty much on your own? So when you say be transparent and be honest, yeah, do you mean accepted and loved and like yeah. I could be myself? Yeah, was there any place where you could just be yourself? And I mean, whether it was were your were your parents supportive, or that obviously they agreed to send you to conversion therapy, so they weren't super supportive. Um, that's and I'm, I'm I'm assuming. To be fair, I am the one that asked to go. Yeah, so it's complicated. It's not yeah, like sure. they forced me to go. It's not like they tied my hands behind my back. It's not like they gotcha. actually encouraged it. I am the one that asked to go. So it's complicated in that way. I would say that I was accepted uh, by several people in my upbringing, uh, specifically like my Aunt Kelly, who I believe loved me no matter what I did under any circumstance. Uh, so that was a really big thing for me. But I always felt at the, ba- on the in the back of my mind that if she knew the truth... How would she respond? Do you know what I'm so like that's where it gets complicated because it's I always doubted it. So it's the love was there, but there was doubt based upon the religious indoctrination and prejudice and all of that that came along with it. So it's it's more complicated. It's not a it's not clear cut. 
yeah, I, I'm, I'm sitting here heartbroken for you because that's, that's just not fair. Like there should have been at least somebody in your life. And, you know, maybe this is a good call out for parents too. Maybe that's another unintended audience here who could say, here's how you might respond if your child says, I want to go to conversion therapy. You say, no. Like you don't need that. <laughs> Like maybe let's not do that. Because I, I do have stories. For every story I've heard of parents who respond poorly to their children coming out, I do have a lot of stories of parents stepping up and responding differently and saying, okay, okay, well, now what do we do? You know, and, and taking those next steps with their kids. Almost everybody that I know personally, sadly, it was a struggle. And I think I've mentioned this once or twice on other podcasts before where it, it, it saddens me that sometimes that's what it takes is, is somebody's own child to be the one. And now all of a sudden now their perspective can change because, well, everybody else's kid is going to hell, but my kid's special. So now, <laughs> so now but, but, but to their credit, many of them do the work and say, okay, well, I need to learn more about this. And, and maybe, and they become, some of them have become very vocal and very, um, very articulate allies. But maybe that's a good unintended audience for, for this as well as, 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 as parents of kids who, who could respond maybe this way to their child. I don't know, just a thought. Well, I have been asked, has, do you think that parents of gay children would benefit from your book? And the answer is yes. Yeah. So it's, it is an unintended audience, but yeah, it's, for sure. it, it is a smaller you know, I, like, I wouldn't say it's the primary. Yeah, uh, right. But I think that there's many. I think it, once you do read my book, which I am going to encourage that you do because it's quite the journey. But as you read my book, I think you will find that there are a lot of different audiences that can benefit from this. In fact, I would say people that maybe not even are gay or are LGBTQ... Well, sorry, are gay, LGBTQ or super involved in the church. The themes of loneliness, the themes of rejection, the themes of struggling, like these run throughout the book as well that I think are universal themes that so many of us can relate to as well. So, you know, I think it has a lot of applicability across the board. No, you're right about that. I mean, those those themes, and that theme of authenticity, right? That runs through yeah. your book. It's, it's like, how do we learn to be our authentic selves? What, whatever that might be, mm-hmm. right? Because there's enough, there's enough of that going on in the world anyway. It's not exclusive to one community or another, but, but many of that, that was one of the things, you know, early, 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 early deconstruction was out of fundamentalism and into, um, what became the grace movement, right? Which was this, at least an attempt to say, listen, we don't, we, we want to step out of performative religion. Let's get out of this place where we have to earn God's favor. Let's get out of this place where we think we have to work and strive for God to pay attention to us and love us. Because many of us have spent our lives in church just on that little hamster wheel, right? Mm-hmm. Do the right things, wear the right clothes, say the right things, hang out with the right people, do the right, you know, and God will bless you somehow. Sadly, that movement, like every other movement, um, at some point stops moving, right? <laughs> and so you're like, okay, well, that grace thing went so far and then it didn't really extend to people who weren't living inside of whatever they deemed was normal and they could be just as hateful towards LGBTQ folks as anybody else, you know, or still hold on to theologies of eternal torment and all kinds of other stuff. So for a lot of us, that was the, you know, it was a, it was a step, like you said, like I, I'll, I'll borrow a phrase of yours. It was one step of many, you know, from this to here, this was, okay, that was a step, but we still had to go through this whole process. But there's a lot of religious trauma that comes in along the way as well. So uh, for that, I mean, again, I, I think the book is, is, is cool. And let me ask you this, what you, you tell this as a story, it's not a story, but you're, it's a narrative. What, what is your, what is your take on the power of story? Is that, how important is that to get people to see a perspective or see something differently? Well, so do you know how my book is laid out? I am going to ask that. I, I'm, look, I'm looking at it right now. I, sadly, John and I both were like, ah, we haven't had a chance to like roll through it. So. so let me be... Well, I want to be a little clear on this because my book is a little unconventional in its layout. Gotcha. But I think... But I like it a lot. <laughs> uh, yeah, good. So the, the, the introduction is primarily story. It's narrative. It tells you 
my life leading up to going into this program. So it lays out the, the scene. So the introduction is really critical. Without the introduction, you don't know what's really going on behind the scenes. Then when you get into the days, I had kept a, an actual journal throughout this experience. They required us to have a journal while we were in the program, and they would actually read it every single night. Oh, wow. So I had, when this was all said and done, I took my journal and I typed it out. It was 300 pages long. Wow. Which is why I have sat on this for 10 years wanting to work on this, but never being able to do it because it was too traumatic to, to actually do. Until I finally was like, okay, I'm going to put the money down and get an editor. So what we did is we took the journal and we just like pulled excerpts from each day throughout all days 1 through 89. And then after pulling out excerpts, I have my reflections of what I think now, present day, as a current therapist. Wow. Okay. So you go from 10 years ago to present, 10 years ago to present. And you kind of get this back and forth, which is a really interesting way of telling the story and providing context then and now. What are your thoughts on that? No, that's incredible. No, that's, I, I think that's amazing because how often, I mean, do you get a chance to look back? I'm sorry, John, I'll, I'll, I'll turn this in a second, but you don't get, you don't get that chance often to, to take your current level of knowledge and awareness and apply it to something that happened a decade ago and go, okay, well, now I understand through benefit of hindsight and education and all the other things that have happened since then, you get to go, oh, okay, I know better now what I was thinking, even in the moment going through it, right? Because you have, now you have the tools, you have hopefully the right, even sometimes just even the vocabulary to say, oh, I was feeling this, I was feeling this, and this, oh, this was, or this was the, the thing they were using against me. And I didn't have a word for it until I maybe went and studied some of these things. So, I mean, first of all, I'm, I'm like tearing up because, I mean, the, the opportunity to be able to talk to you, the past self, your past self, as the therapist who should have been there for you, as opposed to right. the, the, the shitty responses you got is amazing. I mean, if nothing else, people should read it for that because this is a version, this is a version of, uh, responses that you should have got and you didn't get because you were in the middle of ignorance, hatred, all of that. And so I could see where someone who's going through what you were going through then could definitely use this and learn from this as a positive tool to acknowledge their true, their authentic self uh, without having to go through all that bullshit. So I, I applaud you for that because like, I, you know, like I, I'm trying, I'm trying not to cry because this is like, this is, this is amazing. What an amazing idea to use a journal of you in this, in the throes of conversion therapy, but then you as a therapist and a, and a professional now get to looking back and say, this is what I wish someone would have said to me. Yeah. And I often am like, this is total bullshit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like, Everything that guy said, fuck that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I come in and I'm like, uh, this, uh, this is what was really going on. This is what I was really thinking. Yeah, and yeah. This is all messed up. Well, I'm, I'm literally reading through day one as we're sitting here, just because I want to get a, I want to get a, a, a feel for it. And I, and I can see that juxtaposition of your writing, even on day one, like, hey, this is what I'm doing because I need to change, right? So you're still in that mindset of I'm doing this for a very real purpose, which is, um, you know, can I be, can I be changed? Can my homosexuality be cured? And then um, even reading it in that way was like, it, it's such an interesting glimpse into your mindset that I don't think even through benefit of memory, you would have gotten without the journals. That's, that's an incredible gift. And really, the, the journals are meant to bring the person, the reader, like as if you are here with me. That's the whole point. Now, I do want to provide one caveat 
and and that is, is that you might want to, if you do read my book, you might want to throw it across the room at a few points because uh, just being just being transparent, just being real, because I go back and forth throughout the entire book. <laughs> <laughs> like I am not joking. Like, well, like people, but like people do. Like one day I'll be like, this place is absolute shit. Like I am gay. <laughs> I am totally okay. And then the next day it's like, no, I am not. I need to be straight. I need to repent. I need to like do all these things. Like it's just like back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And throughout the entire book until you get to the epilogue. So just, you know, <laughs> embrace yourself for that journey because yeah. I think it's what so many of us go through uh, in the LGBTQIA plus community who are deeply involved in the church. And I want you to know what it's like. I want you to see the inside, the inside look uh, for what this is for us. Uh, and I provide that insight. Yeah. So if you feel like throwing the book, that's normal. Yes. That's cool. Yes. Throw it. And then pick, and then it, back up. pick it up and, and, and get, pick it back. Pick so it back up. Don't buy it in hardcover because somebody could get hurt. Um, that's why it's, that's why it's been provided in paperback. Correct. Um, next time it should be, it should be issued next time with, with like a Nerf cover, like suitable for throwing. <laughs> some point. But I love that. But, but, but really that's that the whole point of this is honesty, right? Right. And you can't be honest without embracing even, even the dumb shit that, that at some point you believed. And you're like, okay, no, no, I'm doing this for the right. I, that's that's honest, um, and that struggle that that most of us, you know. And again, this is the thing that I struggle with as a heteronormative cisgender male, right? It's like trying to put myself in the shoes, at least even in the abstract of somebody going through this is difficult. And so, if I read a story though, or I read somebody else's recollection, I can at least. Um, I can, I can, I can try and say, okay, okay, this, this, this is difficult and made more difficult by things that were outside of your control made and obviously made more difficult than it ever needed to be. I mean, cause I have these thoughts about friends and, and I wonder, you know, what, what could life be like for people if they were just allowed to be who they are without any of this extra baggage and bullshit? Could we not just could people not just flourish and be who they are and not have to spend years in therapy over all the shit that religion has tried to force down their throat? So, man, what a, what a, what a cool idea. Um, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm just gushing now because I think that's, an, I think that's an amazing concept. Yeah. So it was fun. Uh, and I will also note this. I did all of this on TikTok live. So not many people, <laughs> so not many people know this, but like I literally did Hold this. Up. Yeah, really? Yeah. So I would go on TikTok Live and be like, "Okay, guys, be like, all right, everyone, are we ready? Are we buckled in. All right, we're gonna read a journal entry from 2012." And I would read the act, like not just like the excerpt, right? I would read the entire day. <laughs> now, when did you do that? Because now I need to that as I was writing. Couple, like, as you're writing, oh man, I need to go back on TikTok and follow that. Well, it's it's interesting you say that because uh, the book that I have coming out, hopefully sometime next year, I wrote that as a blog, you know. And I thought that was, and I even talked to our to our all all of our publisher and said, I think I made a mistake. I shouldn't have done this as a blog. He's and they're like, no, it's amazing that you did that. This is this was a way for you to put out into the world what you're working on towards this book idea. And so this idea that you put it out on TikTok Live as a way of like announcing to the world that this book is coming and this is all going to be put into one something you can hold. It, it, it personalizes it. It creates it creates a um, a connection to you that I don't know. I don't think you can do without reaching out to people. Uh, I think the idea of publishing is, has changed so much in the last, let's even say five, 10 years, probably even less than that. So where this is, this is the way we should be doing it. This is the way to connect to a community. And then once you connect to that community and you bring them into the fold and you bring them into your 
to your story, they want more. So I, you know, I, I think I, I applaud you for doing that because first of all, it is, it's transparent, it's authentic. There's no way around you know, TikTok specifically. There's no way around. You can't hide that. If, especially TikTok live. If it, it is what it I mean, is, right? You can put a cool filter well, you on. Could, you can put a filter on, but, <laughs> but the story's still the same, right? It's just coming out. It's coming from your heart. Yeah. Think about it is though, people would jump in, right? And they would hear the journal entry and they would think that's where I am now, not that it was in 2012. Oh, so yeah. like the amount of hate that I would get and I'd be like, everyone, <laughs> stop. This is not... Like, no. Stop, stop. Like, no, time out, stop. Time out. <laughs> I, don't, I don't believe this. This is from 2012. You, you... <laughs> Like you missed the whole intro. Like, you're, like you're this is a live recording. This is not. That's amazing. Happening now. Uh, yeah, but yeah. I've actually been sending out books this week to TikTok fans that have been with me. Oh wow! Since the beginning, when that started. That's so cool. So that's, that's kind so of cool. been cool uh, to to have. That I have, I finally have my books, right? So I, I can send out, I can send out copies, and I have TikTok fans that are like, "Hey, I want signed copies because I've been here from when you were doing these on TikTok Live," and I was like, "Yeah, you deserve a copy." Hell yeah! No, that's I think that's man, that's so cool. I have yet to figure out TikTok, so what do I know? And like, <laughs> it's a tough world. Out there. I don't. I'm, I'm old, and and you know, I, I I have all these like, oh, that'd be cool to get on TikTok, and I'm like, I don't know what to do. So, but that, that, I think that's really cool. And that, 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 that whole idea that you can get this, um, sort of, for lack of a better word, like real time glimpse of where you were 10 years ago or 12 years ago, or however long ago it was. And, and you have that window to say, okay, these were, this is what I wrote down at the time. This is how I was feeling. Um, and then get a chance to explore that. Wow. What a, I still, the, the word gift just keeps coming to mind. I think that's a gift, um, that a lot of us don't have. A lot of us, I should have written more, but you know, when I was, cause, or either that or I would look back at that and go, man, you were just a dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> like, like stuff I, I go back and look at my Facebook post oh, from like yeah. 10 years ago and I want to like turn my, like turn my Facebook off. I'm like, you were kind of a dick. <laughs> <laughs> but it was thankful, you know, it, it, and again, I'll go back to it was, it was because of guys like you that I was following on Facebook and other places that I was like, okay, there's more to this story. And that's, if there's nothing else, there is this, at least recognition, right? That there's more to these stories than we've been told. These narratives have been so tuned into like two dimensional binary. There's, there's no complexity to the way that, that the church presents these stories. And then to find out there's way more complexity. There's may, way more richness, you know, to these things. And I don't know. I, I've been in, I've, I've been enriched deeply by the relationships I've, I've been able to forge through that. So. Anyway, I don't, that's not even a question. That's just a tape, John. <laughs> so, what do I know? <laughs> so, so as you go through this process, what? So, at what point did you decide? Okay, I need, I, I need to, I need to go to school and become the person for maybe for somebody else that 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 I wish I'd had when I was a kid. That's a great question. So before I went to the treatment facility, so before this all happened, right? So before I ended up in California doing this, I already had my undergrad in social work. So social work was my bedrock. So I already had a pretty good idea that I wanted to work in the clinical field. Because at that point, I already knew from high school that I was gay. And I knew at a pretty early age that, hey, you know... um, God doesn't approve of you being gay. So what's the closest thing to the ministry? Because I felt, you know, well, it's being the hands and feet of Christ. And well, what's the closest thing to being the hands and feet of Christ in our society? Well, <laughs> what is closer than social work? In, in my opinion. So I got my undergrad in social work, then went to this program, then started my graduate program. Um, and it was pretty much right afterwards. So I knew right away. But this is the thing. Social work allows you to do so many things. And I really kept therapy out of the picture for the longest time. It is literally not until the last two years that I have felt I'm in a position to actually be able to provide that type of care. Yeah. 
So, you know, I had the degree, I had the clinical license, I had the credentials. Yeah. But I was like, I don't, I don't feel like I'm able to do that. And it's too vulnerable for me to do that. And I I just don't feel qualified. Uh, But within the last two years, I've embraced it. Is that more, more a function of, of becoming healthier and saying, okay, now that I'm in a healthier place now, and to me, to, to recognize that, okay, I'm not, I may have the training, I may have the education, but I'm not really like mentally in a place where I can truly offer some help. I think that's super honest. It would make you a, it, maybe we need to talk. I need to, I need some therapy so I could maybe change your services. But, um, but no, I, I, I think that's, I think that's super self aware. You know, it says, okay, it's not just about the education, right? It's not just about the training, but it's also about, um, Coming to a place of health in your own self, yeah. so I think that's uh, yeah, that that's awesome. But I and and I agree with you, by the way, um, when you said, "What's the closest thing to being the hands and feet of Jesus?" I, th- I think therapy is way undervalued, especially in religious circles. Right? It's not just undervalued in, in certain religious circles; it's outright discouraged and disparaged. Well, I would I would go as far as to say that any one of us that grew up in the evangelical fundamentalist church needs therapy. We just do. We do. <laughs> we really do. Wrong. No, you're probably, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. So I specialize in religious trauma. <laughs> so, you know, okay. just throwing that out there <laughs> because I agree <laughs> with you, John. Yeah. Well, and very much so. So I, I, you know, I finally acknowledged my, my level of anxiety and depression about two years ago. And I finally reached out to a therapist and, would you fucking believe that the first person they give me is someone who is a Christian therapist? It's, what? Yeah, literally. Like, the first the person they, 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 they give me, his background is in, is Christian, is, is within the Christianity field. And I like, I'm like, okay, let's, let's see what we can do here. You know, I'm trying to be open. And so I like, okay, let's talk about the elephant in the room. That's my first session with this guy. And it's like, the church and Christianity is the majority of my trauma. So don't ask me to pray more. Don't ask me to read my Bible more. And he's like, okay, we can work with that. And I'm like, okay, let's try this. Because I've never stepped into therapy in my life. And we made it through like eight sessions. And I'm like, I'm done. Because he he's giving me these like these these pamphlets on the uh, you know God and family it's almost the umbrella thing right <laughs> holy shit yeah. really this guy's like yes. a licensed therapist and, uh, so I I abandoned it quickly you're gonna get me heated John <laughs> you're gonna get me heated over here <laughs> so uh, well I stepped away from it because I was like obviously this isn't gonna help me because I'm not kidding ninety percent of my trauma my whatever you want to call it is church you know it it is and so to put me in a position where you're having me be talked to by a christian therapist was like trauma inducing times 10 well no shit so, <laughs> so i walked away from that and it was only it, uh, uh and for all of those of who listen to this podcast and know that I, you know, they've heard some of this journey, I've just stepped it back into uh, therapy. And obviously, the first question I made was, I don't want a Christian therapist. Uh, please, for the love of God. Uh, so my my first therapy session will be in December, and it's someone who's not Christian. <laughs> and hopefully, we can work through some of my actual trauma, not what he thought was my trauma. <laughs> right. Right. So... I I go into this in my book. Yeah. Is anyone surprised? So like <laughs> I have some very strong feelings on this topic, some very strong feelings and I really go into it because I think that Christian counseling is a joke. Yes. Um oh yeah. And you know, first of all, most of them aren't even credentialed. So no. it's not even like a legit it's not even like a legit degree. They're not even legit counselors. But, you know, if they are, that's a different story. But if he's literally giving you pamphlets on the church. Right. Yeah. What the fuck is he doing? <laughs> yeah. Right. Because he should be working on where you are. The The whole point of the clinical field is to meet you where you are and walk with you th- through what steps you need to take. Right. 
If you are identifying that church is a trigger for you, bringing up church and forcing that down your throat is the very opposite right. of good clinical care. Yeah. In statement. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, full stop. Like, no joke. Like, like my wife, my wife actually went to, this is funny, she, she, was, she went to a Christian counseling course. And this was lay people teaching lay people how to be Christian counselors. And after the first class, she was like, I'm done. Like, no, no, no. no. I, so she came back. She's like, this is, this is horseshit. All of this is dumb. I said, no, 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 no. Keep going. I want to know what they say. And so she went. She went through the whole course just to report back to me what they were saying. And it was, and I'm not a trained psychologist. I'm not. I won't pretend to be one. But as a lay person, I could sit there and go, everything was utter horseshit. It was the most triggering. And it was very, it was, it was the most cliche, um, just sort of knee jerk, weird. It's just, it was dumb. You know what I mean? Every, everything had to have a biblical backing to it. So every, every piece of advice was, you know, cause they were a Bible based, you know, whatever, um, therapy. It was some of the, I would actually say it was, it was, it went beyond ignorant and went to damaging. And all you're going to do with that is re-traumatize people. Well, that's the sad part, isn't it? You know that that within this within this bubble of of the church, they think they're getting help, and at the end of it, and they're just being re-traumatized. They're, they're being re-traumatized. There's more damage. There's more hurt. Uh, they're regurgitating very hurtful things about you know the people that they they are supposedly helping, right? And if the church could just step back and acknowledge that they have no place in therapy at all, and that they would be willing to 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 partner with someone who is a legitimate therapist, but you know, a church will never do that. No, I have yet to see a church that was willing to do that. I, I will say, uh, for I tried that. So in my church, I told you, right? I told people, listen, I'm not good at this. This is not what I'm trained in. This is not what I know. And I engaged the services of a friend who was a clinical psychologist. And I said, hey, would you come and would you be available for people who I think are way, 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 you know, and again, beyond my scope is not much. You know, if you're having trouble in your marriage, maybe we can talk about some superficial things and I can help you. Um, But when people came with actual psychological issues, I'm like, you need to go see my friend, Matt. Like he's an actual clinically trained psychologist. He's really smart. This is beyond my scope. And there's nothing wrong with saying that. And that's that. That's that's the problem with I think with the way that the church views clergy now is there's no ability to say, you know what, I'm not trained for this. Just be honest. Like like know your limitations and say, you know, I can do this, but I I don't know how to do this other thing. But that, that but that removes your clergy. It removes your congregation from you. Well, that was the problem is I told everyone from day one, I didn't have any authority, you know, so that's a really, that's, that's rule number one as a pastor. You never like seed authority. I, I never had any, so it was fine. Go ahead, Seth. I'm, you had something to say. <laughs> well, I wanted just to mention this. What do we know? And you guys might not know this, but like in the clinical field, and I'm assuming you guys know this, but like, maybe you, you might, I think you do. What do we know most specifically about Abusive in relationship, abusive relationships. What do they operate on? Yeah, fear, intimidation, manipulation, control. Okay, that's one of the words I'm looking for. So they operate. What's the other? So control. Um, what else you looking for? Fear is not one of them because fear. I feel like fear, well, fear is, is one part of, of control. Fear is part of control. I mean, fears. Fears part of it, but like power and control. It's it's what we know. In domestic violence situations and any type of abusive relationship, power and control is what primarily uh, drives those those relationships, and it's what the church thrives on. Right? Yeah, you're right. It's what it's how it's how the church survives. Yeah, is power and control, and when we start to then look at that within a clinical lens and they're providing clinical services, this gets really messy really, really quickly because how can they provide objective care if they're operating out of it, 
out of a framework of power and control, in which case they are the ones that always have the right answers. Yeah. I mean, the word incestuous like popped into my mind. Like that is like ultimately, right? Like I thrive on power and control. Well, let me exert some power and control over you to tell you how to deal with this problem. Holy shit. Yeah, you're right. And I, you know, I grew up and John and I both grew up in fundamentalist churches. Um, and we knew people who were in unhealthy, abusive relationships who wore that almost as a badge of honor that they endured it because the church told them, you know, and I write that, but I write about this in my book you know, that the church had told them that marriage was the institution of marriage was more important than the people inside of those marriages. Like they weren't entitled to have autonomy. They weren't entitled to have agency over their lives. They'd entered into this covenant. And now that was, you know, of utmost and primary importance. Um, how much trauma have people endured staying in relationships that were abusive because the church told them they should? Bingo. Right? <laughs> or told them that, you know, how about that verse that says that, you know, an unbelieving husband is saved by her wife. And so I have, I've known women who've stayed in abusive relationships thinking they have the power of salvation over their husbands by staying in relationships that ultimately demean and dehumanize them. And not only them, but maybe even the kids. Oh, and oh God, absolutely. Yeah. Family systems, like it affects the entire family. So like this, this goes, this trickles down. This is the whole curse of the father. Yeah, visited upon the children. So the curse of the father visited upon the children is that a uh, either a father or a mother stays in a relationship because God tells them they need to stay, even though it's so damaging that it teaches the children to stay in damaging relationships, which yeah, teaches the sure. grandchildren to stay in damaging. This is generational trauma. This is exactly what this is. You're exactly right, and we and we want and we want to put it on and we want to put it on some kind of demonic version of that. No, this is families looking at their parents, looking at their grandparents, saying, well, it was good enough for them, it's good enough for me. And someone needs to break the cycle. Someone needs to say, fuck that. I'm walking away from trauma. I'm walking away from abuse. I'm walking away from all of that. And that, that could be abuse towards a, um, a married couple. Uh, that could be abuse towards your LGBTQIA+. Plus child who you don't want to acknowledge it's 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 the same it's all trauma yeah and but the church says to live in that and in some way what you get a, a higher place in heaven well because again the institution gets valued above the human beings inside those institutions and that's a level of bullshit so i just can't handle it anymore no, I can't either. And, and so for that reason, Seth, your book, your work, all the things you've done publicly, um, I, man, I, I tell you what, I don't think you've even begin to just scratch the surface of how much impact you're going to have. I think that's amazing. And I, just, I can speak for myself. I can speak, I, I'm sure John's had the same, a similar experience, but these are the, these are the kinds of narratives and stories that we need to hear. So that we can, and again, I, I know your, your intended audience is, is at least one of them is the church. The church needs to reckon with this if they're ever going to be relevant ever again. And I think I write about this in my book. I, I don't know that they will. And if they don't, then they will. I don't know that they will. I, I'm not sure they can. I'm not sure. They painted themselves into such a corner. They would have to do something really, really dramatic, like say, holy shit, we were wrong. <laughs> Sorry, uh, that doesn't happen. That I don't often. know if I see that happen. Yeah, I, I was going to say I don't know if I see that happening. In the absence of that, there will be people on the outside like us and, and you, hopefully, who who maybe can forge a different path. So uh, I'm super thankful for that. If if nothing else, man, I'm all about it. Yeah, I'm all about it too, man. And I may be hook. I may be calling you up for some uh, some some clinical work. <laughs> <laughs> Call no, me anytime. No, no, and. Uh, you know what? I said that flippantly. I didn't mean it that way. I really didn't. I think that work you're doing is, is every yeah, bit as important absolutely. as the books you're writing. Yeah. I think it's every bit as important as, as anything else you're doing. So, But the book is finally free, right? Yep. A Surrender to Authenticity. And I'm telling you what, it's more than a buzzword, right? This thing of authenticity is way... I mean, it, it's so critical 
to to who we are, not just not just the people in the LGBTQ community, but for all of us, right? To find a way to live authentic lives and be who we are and find the freedom to do that. I think that's it's critical. So if you haven't gone on TikTok and followed Seth, apparently you need to. There's apparently a bunch of awesome TikTok lives. Are they still out there online? I don't think the lives are anymore. No. But I can tell you what, I did a 30-day countdown with vid- like snippets of my book nice. with video explanations of what those s- snippets actually meant and what they were all about. Very cool. And okay. I did that for 30 days prior to the launch. Nice. Nice. Okay. So there's a lot of material yeah. out there. So uh, yeah. On my TikTok. Well, we'll link to your TikTok. We'll link to your Facebook. We'll link to your yep. book, obviously. Um if you have not had a chance, uh, go buy the book and go go support Absolutely. the work. Yeah, we uh, we firmly believe in what you're doing. We appreciate your time, man. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit Patreon.com/slash This Is Not Church, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.